Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Action Replay on DCUFM. We are the number one college radio show in the country. And I did just pull that out of thin air, but come up with some numbers that prove me wrong. And then we'll talk. Uh, I'm joined as ever by Sean Crosby. How you doing? Not too bad. And uh, we're delighted as well to welcome back our resident authority on the NFL and All-American Sports, Sean Comer. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Sean. It's good to be back. Uh, and we'll be getting into the NFL near the uh, the tail end of this show. And we'll also be going into not just upcoming UFC. Uh, Poirier McGregor, too, obviously has a lot of Irish inter- interest. But also, we'll be talking about what happened in the UFC over the weekend because, oh my, it's some memeable content. But we're going to start, as we often do, with the Premier League. And the biggest game of the season so far uh, was Liverpool versus Manchester United this past Sunday. And it it finished nil-nil. And the previous most anticipated game of the season, I think, was United City. And that also finished nil-nil. But I think this was a substantially more interesting game because it was explicitly at the top of the table, this match. Uh, And also, it wasn't just two teams cancelling each other out like the Manchester Derby was. There was very much a sense of push and pull. And, you know, obviously, um, Liverpool were doing more of the pushing. But... United had their moments as well, and I, I don't know, Crosby, was a point of fair result, do you think? Um, in the end, probably was, because neither side really well, particularly United, didn't go for it at all. They came, they set up uh, for the point, really. You could see that with uh, the exclusion of Eric Bailly, which still kind of puzzles me. Because uh, I think a lot of people expected their game plan to be to sit back and have Victor Lindelof kind of spray passes in behind, but that didn't really happen. Uh, in the end, yeah, the game deserved it all. Neither side, particularly neither front three really turned up. Um, I don't think, I think they didn't really look that dangerous. And then even the key players like Bruno Fernandes, there's that stack going around there that he's only scored one goal against the top six and it was a penalty in the 6-1 loss to Spurs. Like he's not turning up in these big games as well. But I think overall, you know, he would be happy to come away uh, with a point there because they now sit two points clear uh, at the top but I guess the main I kind of go with the first question really from that match uh, I'll bring it to you Comer do you think that they that United can sustain this uh, consistent stay at the top or is is a plummet kind of due to happen I think that star players like Fernandez would have to show up in big games against teams around them uh, for United to sustain a title challenge because if they're happy to take a point against all the other sides that are up there, so like against Spurs or whoever it might be, then I don't see them going anywhere. You kind of have to beat the teams around you. Uh, I think if you're going to have success in the Premier League, so <coughs> as well as that, I think the, the short... I, although the squad has played well this year, well, in the last few weeks anyways, I think that there's still just a few shortcomings there and I, I don't know about Pogba on the wing he played alright I thought on Sunday but nothing really to write home about then again he could have scored the winner but it was a good save from Allison. Uh I think that uh, Rashford as good as he can be uh, was caught offside 
a lot. Fernandez had fire from his best game for United, but then again, he nearly scored a wondrous free kick. But then even the team selection, like you said, the by exclusion puzzled you. I was uh, I was a bit puzzled by that as well because mm. from what I could see, by was in good form going into this game, and there was no there was no injury or anything. I know that the main problem with Eric by these last few years, although he has been bad at times, uh, you know the main problem is usually injury. That's hampered him more than anything, I think. But there was no injury going into this game. I think on form, he's probably United's best centre half and. I don't. I can't see why he was excluded. It was really weird. So I don't know if United will sustain the challenge. I think if the game Sunday told us anything about the two teams, it's that Liverpool probably are less likely to win the league, to are less likely to retain the league. But it may not necessarily be Man United who are the ones taking it off them. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and actually, you mentioned a lot of the kind of key players there for United, like the Pogba. And those, and there's a lot of talk, particularly with him, you know, because he got that goal against Burnley, and it seems like now maybe this is his time to really. We wait, like United fans have waited four years nearly for this man to really come and, and lead them, and maybe now there's a chance for him to leave a legacy here. But uh, I go to you, Brezen, like how important are the likes of Pogba and Fernandez? Like how important is these individual performances? How key are they for uh, United to push for the challenge? push for the title sorry. I think it's always been a thing with United that they need their star players to step up probably more so than a lot of other clubs because yeah United have always been a strong team but you've always focused on the the standout individuals because uh, that's how it's been in our, in United for a long time like in the in the initial years of the Premier League Eric Cantona was that difference and then uh in 2007-2008, Ronaldo was that guy. And so much has been made of how Fernandez has turned United around. And the reason there's so much about that is because it's true. You can see a definite turn last season from the time before United had Fernandez and after United had Fernandez. Um, and Pogba is, a, is he's always been a frustrating one, I think, for Man United fans because... You know what he can do. We've seen what he can do, but a lot of the time it just doesn't feel like he wants to do it. Um, so I think individual performances will be key, but it doesn't really excuse everyone else. They they need to kind of step up and carry their weight too because as much as I've mentioned that individuals can win the league they can't do it by themselves. They need a good support system. So um, everyone at United, I think, needs to to step up. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said there. Um, speaking of individual performances, and Comer touched on as well, Marcus Rashford was offside just countless times. And I don't know, one thing I've noticed with him as of late is I don't personally think his performances are really living up to what he's meant to be. Like, you see him a lot of the time on counter attacks and stuff. His decision making is horrendous at times, and he seems to kill a lot more attacks than he helps them. Fair enough, he got the assist against Burnley, but I think it papered over a a, a poor enough performance. Just ask again, present. Do you know what do you what do you make of his performances? Do you do you think that that he's declined in in the kind of standard we set for him, or do you think he's just kind of he's going all right at the moment? 
I think you have to bear in mind that he is still only 22 and an, an enormous amount has been placed on him, not just from what he's doing out, outside of football, but he is kind of United's main man up front. Um, Fernandes and Pogba are in midfield. Um, he is seen as United's star striker. And naturally, that's going to give you a bit more attention from the opposition team. And I think we saw that on Sunday. Uh, I think Liverpool did a really good job on him. Whether or not um, it was Rashford's fault that he was offside so much or Liverpool were kind of playing him offside, just setting that offside trap for him. It's it it's going to be something that he's going to have to get used to, these teams targeting him, because they obviously see him as uh, a guy that if he's playing well, United play well. So you see the really great players rise above that. And Rashford has proven himself to be a very good player. But as the years progress, he's going to need to step up to that level where even though um, teams have specifically prepared something to stop him, he finds a way around it. And it'll it'll take some time, I think. Yeah. Um, and a team that he has actually time and time again over the years kind of overcome uh, them tagging him is actually Manchester City, who are, I still can't believe they're kind of just, no one's really paying too much attention to them. And they're kind of the dark horse of this league, I think. They had a 4-0 win against Palace is overly convincing. And John Stones and Ruben Diaz seem to have formed a decent spine at the back for them. And this is even without Emerick Laporte. Um, and then Kevin De Bruyne is still just Kevin De Bruyne, really. That's that's what it is. But the defence is the defense is the main thing. It's been a big issue for Pep uh, and City since company's departure. And I guess, Comer, I'll come to you like... You know, we've seen now Stones and has put out some good performances. He finally looks like the defender that he was hyped up to be all those years ago when he left uh, Everton. Um, is this the most kind of solid that City of Luxon's company and like you know the whole thing of defense wins, defense wins titles? You know, is that a foundation for them to push on and maybe snatch this title away from the the clubs that we think are the main contenders? Uh, yeah, I definitely think it's probably the best form we've seen of City since uh, they won their second title in a row uh, two seasons ago in that mad title race with Liverpool. Uh, I think that a big issue for them kind of last season was the fact that Vincent Company was gone and even though he wasn't doing a whole lot on the pitch because injuries and his age kind of hampered him, but I think that off the pitch, you know, in the dressing room, he was clearly a big leader in that team. And I think that they kind of struggled with him absent for that past year because at times they kind of didn't show any mental bottling situations. You know, they'd lose late leads or whatever it might be. They're just kind of collapsing some games. And it kind of was going that way this year, but it looks like they've turned it around. I think that they might be inspired by what they're seeing from Liverpool in the sense that Liverpool aren't, you know, hitting on all fronts this year at all. Uh, well, in the last few weeks, anyways, you know, they've had their moments like against Leicester and Palace and Wolves. But, you know, overall, I think it's been slightly disappointing for Liverpool for a number of reasons. But City, I think, have realised, although they started the league quite slow and I was looking at them at the start thinking, this, I, can, I don't see where this team's going. Like, they just didn't look very good. They've now realised that they're very much in this title race and they've hit form, I think, at the perfect time because it's coincided with Liverpool dropping off in form and like you said, if John Stones can all of a sudden 
live up to the fifty million pound price tag he had, even in the absence of Americ Laporte and form a solid partnership with Ruben Diaz. And City looks solid at the back, and I think it's fair enough to assume that attacking wise they'll take care of themselves because you mentioned Kevin De Bruyne there. His I admittedly I didn't watch the whole City game now on Sunday. I saw the first half. His cross for that John Stones goal was just yeah. unbelievable. Like outside of the for anyone that didn't see it, the outside of the foot cross was just it was unbelievable to watch. I think I think he's the best player in the Premier League on his day. Um so definitely if City can sustain themselves at the back, then I think they're probably the ones who are going to win this title because Liverpool just have too many injuries at the back and it doesn't look like they're going to sign a centre half this uh, this transfer window, which is disappointing to me as a Liverpool fan, but um, you know, hopefully eventually you get Van Dijk and Gomez back for next year and you'll go again, but yeah, I think that if City just keep maintaining solid performances at the back, now it will be interesting to see how they do against uh, some of the teams near the top of the table again you know whenever that rematch with Leicester comes around that'll be fascinating because Leicester of course just destroyed them at the Etihad this season 5-2 and you know other teams it'll be interesting to see how they do against City Spurs are another team that have already beaten them this year but I think they put a counter-attacking clinic against them earlier this season so yeah definitely if City can stay solid at the back I think they're the team to beat and I think that like I said they've just hit form at the right time it seems to be clicking perfectly for them so yeah watch out for them definitely I think that I I think that they might end up being champions even though a few weeks ago I thought it would be Liverpool but Liverpool just haven't been very good recently and I think that City or City have been at the perfect time pack schedule it's I think it's City's to lose going from here yeah, I think I think a lot of people are starting to finally maybe wake up and realize that. Um, talked actually talked a lot about you know they they started off poor this season, and I guess one one issue with with Guardiola is always those big games. Now he overthinks them. Um, and I'll just bring it to you, Brezen. Like when they have to play the likes of Spurs and Leicester again, do you think that you know can can he finally sort it himself and get get this team? Get his selection, his tactics right. Do you think that they'll be able to kind of overcome those mental barriers of losing like heavy defeats to like the Leicester and stuff? Can you do you think that City have enough to go on and push push for this title? I think they do. Uh, they have the experience of having done it before, um, obviously in 2018 and 2019. And Guardiola obviously has myriad experience of being successful everywhere. I I think that the um, they will benefit from the fact that no one around them is really making a strong push right now and I think they they will show the signs of being a really great team in that they don't always have to be at their best to win. I think they just they can just win a bit more than those around them. If if Liverpool get Van Dijk and Gomez back to rebuild their defence. I think it could be another story. But uh, I do agree with Comer that City are the favourites. Nothing set in stone, obviously. But just analysing all the teams in and around the top part of the table, I do think City look the most likely. Yeah, and I think Comer said as well that they're probably 
their squad looks the best and on paper they probably have the most complete squad and still like Aguero's to come back and what a difference he can make. Um, one team that are struggling with a striker to make a difference is uh, Chelsea, who just managed to scrape past Fulham 1-0 at the weekend. And I guess the big talking boy has to be Timo Werner. Four goals in the league so far this season. I'll bring it to you, Bresen. Like, what, what is... I, we probably talked about this before. But what exactly is wrong with Timo Werner? Is he out of position? Some talk about that. You know, he needs kind of the left wing. and Even that one-on-one miss was cutting in from the left. But then I think something that I was looking at, you know, when I was doing the notes for this was this Chelsea and world-class strikers hasn't been the best kind of relationship over the years. Like we've seen with the likes of Torres, uh, Shevchenko and like Morata, like these players who have proven themselves elsewhere just can't seem to do it when they're put on the Chelsea jersey. So do you think, is it something with the player or is it something with the club? What exactly is going wrong with Timo Werner? It's quite difficult to say because, yeah, you're right. There is that history of um, strikers not doing too well at Chelsea. Um, and there is that pattern would, would suggest that something's wrong there. I, I think, I, I just think that, that Tammy Abraham is a better fit for the, the type of, of football that Frank Lampard wants to play. Now, obviously, he's quite young. And you, you you can't play him all the time. Sometimes you do need that little bit more experience. But I don't know. I don't know how much more patience they can have with Werner. I'm sure that he'll he'll come up with some goals. But it it is it is a very strange situation that it, it it's a little bit difficult to fathom. Um, I'd be I'd be inclined to. To, to give him a bit more of a chance because they did spend a lot of money on him and they wouldn't want that money to go completely to waste. So they have to give him a bit of a chance. But I, I, I don't know. It's very, it's very strange. Yeah, and you wonder kind of how, how detrimental that patience could be to Frank Lampard. Because obviously, you know, they scraped by Fulham, like I said, and it could have gone completely differently had it not been for the, the game change after the red card, obviously. And, if Cavallero put his chance away, which would have probably been one of the goals of the season, was one of the most well-worked kind of team attacks I've I've seen in a while. But um, they, like I said, you know, they scraped through and Lampard's job every week. I think now has just been calling the question. I guess I've, I've asked you, Conor, you know, like how how long can he hang on for, and and how much of it do you think can be blamed on him? Because you know, Timo Werner seemed like a surefire way to get 20 goals at least out of a player. And it's just not happened. And I don't know how much that you can blame on the manager. I don't know what you think. Uh, it's a tough one, definitely. I remember, like you said, he looked like he'd be a surefire thing. And I definitely thought that when he came in. I know for a fact uh, when he didn't end up signing for Liverpool, when Liverpool didn't pull the trigger on the signing, which I felt like back towards kind of February, March, before COVID came in, you know, whenever you're talking about summer transfer rumours, Liverpool seemed to be the favourites for signing him. So when it inevitably didn't happen and he went to Chelsea, I was not distraught, but I was I was thinking, oh, I would have liked to see him at Liverpool. But, you know, if we're not seeing on what's going on behind the scenes, which I'm sure it'll all eventually come out someday, but I don't know where we can really place the blame. I 
the player can't be blameless in this himself. I mean, you know, he's the one that's going out there and not performing. So, like I said, you can't just give him a pass. Uh, surely Frank Lampard also isn't blameless in this. I think he, you know, he got this, uh, one of the hottest properties in Europe in Timo Werner, and it just hasn't worked. I don't know if it's a positional thing because he kind of played off the left for uh, Leipzig when he was there, albeit he was in kind of a 3-4-3, I think. So he had someone further out left to him in the wing back, but still he was playing kind of off the striker. So you assumed he'd be all right there. But yeah, it's gone to the stage where it's kind of a confidence problem with him as well. The first few weeks, it was like, okay, it's just not clicking. But, you know, you kind of sat back and thought it's only a matter of time before he inevitably clicks. But now it's gotten to the stage where I think his confidence is shot. You know, like you said, he's missing one-on-ones. And that's the sign of a striker who's just not confident. I would also say that, um, you know, Breslin talked about how Chelsea probably don't want all the money to go to waste. But, I mean, this is Chelsea Football Club. You mentioned their history with these great strikers, Shevchenko, Torres, Morata, who they spent money on. And inevitably, at the end of their times at Chelsea, their solution was just to bite the bullet on the transfer fee because Abramovich has so much money and just decide to use it elsewhere. Just decide, okay, this one didn't work. We'll go out and buy another one, you know. So I think that when that's Chelsea's history of dealing with a striker who's struggling, and it's not like most clubs in the Premier League who kind of have to prove that their purchase was worth it, Chelsea can decide they're going to move on. They could probably sell him to someone else for a reduced fee, but like I said, it's nothing to Abramovich. They'll probably bring in someone else. And I think that if he doesn't show some type of turnaround before the end of the season, I would I would argue you could see him gone in the summer. I really think it's that it's kind of getting that dire for him there. Yeah, they're um, they're definitely a cutthroat club altogether. Like Varner could be gone, Lampard very much could be as well. Um, a, a striker kind of in and out of form, and a former manager at the helm seems to be a London thing because we move across to Arsenal, and obviously for once we're not. It's not just Arteta, but um, they managed to they they bet they bet Newcastle at the weekend, and finally. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang got back on the score sheet after God knows how long and you know all that thing after he signed the contract he didn't look like the same player but I guess there's there's always something to talk about with Arsenal and the the performances are very up and down and at the moment they have uh, these youngsters Emil Smith-Rowe and Bukayo Saka who are putting in incredible performances for them but one of the issues with that I think is you know, they're such young players and how long can they keep this performance going because they're only at the start of their careers and there's a lot of expectation. We talked about Rashford as well. Like You kind of would forget how young he is because there's so much expectation on him. And, you know, not to quote Alan Hansen, but, you know, the way he said, you can't win anything with kids. Uh, just how, I'll ask you, comrade, just how, how kind of dangerous is it for Arsenal to be relying on these youngsters for results week in week out and do you think that there's a lack of leadership in there and do you need more experience well uh, first of all I, d- I definitely like throwing an Alan Hansen quote into anything but uh yeah no I I agree if you're that reliant on young players I think it's a bit of a you're playing with fire at that stage I'm not suggesting that Saka and the likes aren't talented I'm I really like the look of uh Bukayo Saka I think he's extremely talented and he's gonna have a good career but you know you also mentioned Marcus Rashford and you know he's only what age is Rashford 22 so like when he has 
but it's just because he's been at it so long. You know, he kind of burst onto the stage as a 19-year-old in that game against, uh, it was actually against Arsenal, I think, on his debut. He scored two goals. Uh, you know, he had a great following Manchester derby. He kept scoring on all his debuts. I, mean, I remember it was the joke at the time. So inevitably, when there is somewhat of a, a bit of a rough patch for him, he's, uh, you know, it's it's like he's scrutinised, but, you know, you have to remember his age. I would say that you can see the same with Trent Alexander-Arnold for Liverpool in that Southampton game last week. He didn't have a good game. And, you know, people were kind of scrutinising him for it. And then, you know, I would say that this is a guy who's only 22, and yet at the age of 22, Alexander-Arnold has played in, like, two Champions League finals. He's played for his country at the uh, World Cup. He won one of the Champions League finals. He's won a Premier League. He looks like one of the best right-backs in Europe. He's achieved all these things. He's only 22. So when he inevitably does have somewhat of a down game, you have to give him a bit of a break. And I think this the thing with Arsenal is they're more reliant on their youngsters than United were with Rashford then. And then Liverpool, I would think, have been with Alexander-Arnold, although he is vital to their style of play. So... You know, if Saka inevitably does have a bit of a rough game, which which happens, it happens to a young player. I think that, you know, there's no indication that the senior players in this Arsenal team are going to step up. I know Aubameyang had a good uh, game on, I think it was yesterday. He, I know he had a good game, but if his season is anything to go off, I don't know how much you can rely on him. Other guys in the squad like Lacazette, Willian, I don't think you can depend on them because it's been so poor for them this summer. So... I mean, this season, sorry. So, yeah, I think it's definitely a dangerous game for Arsenal to rely so much on youngsters, as much potential as these guys have. To see them as your key players this early in their career, is it's it's a dangerous game. Yeah, it is definitely. And like they've, they're a club that's always been good at producing young talent, but you do need to find that right balance. And like you said, the likes of Aubameyang and Lacazette aren't dependable, which kind of inexcusable for the money they paid and kind of what you'd expect from them. Um, I'll bring it to you, Bez, and then, like, f- the other big news with Arsenal is finally, finally, the Mesut Ozil saga has come to an end. He's gone to Fenerbahce. And, you know, there was a lot of talk, and I've kind of of the opinion that I felt he was kind of hard done by to be left out of the Premier League squad and stuff. Just how big of a loss do you think like has he he's been already this season how big of a loss would you be to that club anyway because we talked about how they need kind of a bit more experience and leadership and you couldn't find someone he's really he has it all like he's won the champions league he's won the world cup like he's incredible pedigree just how much of a loss will mesolares will be to arsenal uh, i think it'll be a really big loss in just in terms of experience and i think it's another sign of the fact that arsenal going forward just aren't going to be a big club um you guys were talking about how whether or not it was fair for Arsenal to be relying on young players to get good results I don't think they should be relying on anyone to get good results to to any massive extent because I don't think those good results are going to come They, they are on the way down they have been for a while and it just took this atrocious run of form that left them only a few points above the relegation zone for everyone to kind of realise that, I think. So him going is a blow. Um, I think I think he'll do fairly well for himself uh, at Fernabachi. I don't know how big of an impact, though, he'll make outside of, out, outside of 
Turkish league football, but it's it's a blow to Arsenal, no doubt about it. Yeah, and um, you talked about actually kind of how they've they've you, you could argue that maybe they've lost that status as a big club, uh, and one team that are kind of the opposite of that are uh, Leicester City who find themselves second and could go top this evening if they uh, were to beat Chelsea. But um, just looking at them, like, Rodgers done a brilliant job, I would say, anyway. Like, you know, he had that that uh, that season with Liverpool, obviously with the Gerrard slip and stuff. And then I think some could argue took an easy route, route with Celtic. You know, it's, well, maybe not this year, but most years it looks like it's a guaranteed league at least. Um, but he's come back and and he has them looking like a real a really good top four side, and like since since they won the league in 2015-16, they finished twelfth and then ninth two years in a row. The second one was when he joined and he had them finish fifth last year. And I guess one just a question I kind of wanted to I'll, I'll bring it to the two of you, but I'll put the comer first. Do you know, like Leicester, the year they won the league, they they um couldn't sustain that kind of those kind of players like you know they sold Kante and Mares left eventually they're kind of looking like a bit of a, a bit of a selling club but now they've kind of come back and there's a bit more of a structure there an infrastructure for them to hold on to these players I guess the thing I was wondering you know if they finish top four there is no real reason for these players to leave to go to the likes of City and stuff like that like, there's no reason for a Tiemans or a Madison or like a, uh, a Sionkyu to to leave the club so could they be like what Spurs have become, a regular top four fixture? Like, do you can you see Leicester kind of being a regular uh, in the top four for years to come? Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. I I would agree that if they do finish top four, you know, what reason is there for Madison or Telemans or anyone like that to leave? I'd also argue that this current Leicester squad actually is a bit more set up in the long run than the squad that won the title, because the squad that won the title, you know, the key players were Vardy, who's obviously still there, but Mars and Kante, everyone knew during the title season that they weren't going to be there for much longer because the two of them were that good. And then, you know, at the back, they were being uh, held up by Robert Hoot and Wes Morgan and his solid table this season. It's, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly a young centre-back partnership. So, yeah, the current kind of spine of this Leicester team are young and are going to be good players, I think, in the league for years to come, whether that be at Leicester or elsewhere. Now, it will be interesting to see can Rodgers keep it together as they inevitably head into the home straight later on in the season uh, for the top four race because it didn't happen at all last year. Last year, you know, people thought they were a surefire for the top four because of how good they got off to a start. But then I remember there was the Stevens Day game against Liverpool. They got trashed 4-0 and they didn't look the same team ever after that and when they lost on the last day to United during the summer you know the last game of the season um, where obviously the game ended up clinching top four for United uh, a lot of the talking point was about how the injuries had come in and you know the I remember the Sky Sports camera pointing to the likes of Madison and Sionku set up in the stands who you know they were kind of making the argument that if these guys had been playing you know the game could have gone different and Leicester could have won it and maybe they'd have been the ones in the top four but I also felt that Leicester's form was declining before the injuries and the delay of the league season. So I'm not sure they would have actually ended up there anyways. But you would think that Brendan Rodgers would have learned from that. It's now two situations in Brendan Rodgers' career in England where you know he just wasn't able to keep it together for 
the home straight. There was the title push with Liverpool in 2013-14, and then there was the top four push with Leicester last year. So you would think that these kind of uh, being taught like how to keep it together in a very tough fashion because you know the title race for Liverpool was especially you know heartbreaking for them and just the way it happened and you know it's easy to pin it all on Gerard Slip but there was the collapse at Palace as well which was the sign of a team that just couldn't keep it together and then like I said there's Leicester last year so you think that Rodgers has learned the tough way that you're going to have to keep a team mentally right in the most important part of the season and how they balance that with Europa League will be very interesting you know do they decide they've a good enough squad to really push at the Europa League and you know, maybe try win that. You know, I'm not sure if that's likely, but, you know, if they feel it is, then they should go for it. I also wonder that they feel that they could be good enough to maybe make a push in the FA Cup. You know, they, they have a squad that can, you know, beat most teams on its day in the Premier League. So, you know, there's also a chance for trophies here for Leicester. So I think that if Rodgers has learned his lessons from inevitably, you know, falling apart at the wrong stage of a season, then they can keep it together. And if they do make Champions League, I think that they're going to keep their main players during the summer because there's not that much of an incentive to go elsewhere. Yeah, uh, that is. I think that is always the big thing with those teams, these kind of teams, is to hold on to those players. Um, I'll bring to you as well, Brezen, like we've, we've seen these kind of teams come and go. Do you know, like like we, we talked about it a while ago on the show, you know, you Moises Everton, throughout the 2000s were always just pushing and stuff like that and we're still to see what maybe Ancelotti's Everton could do but do you know is there is there a difference in this kind of Leicester team to those Everton teams of the past like are they more well-rounded and suited side to the top four and um do you think that in the long run uh that we could see like we had a top four in the 2000s it's now become the top six because of the likes of City and Spurs could we have a like top seven nearly do you, do you think that there is kind of there is like legs in this kind of theory that maybe Leicester could um, become a regular in the top four? I think they can. I do think they can. I think they are much. They are set up much better um, than they for the future than they were in 2016 because Leicester still weren't considered a big club and those uh, top quality players were looking to move on to bigger teams but now Leicester are a big team and they recognize that if like Spurs did a few years ago that if they stick with this they can reap the rewards of their hard work and I I think they're in a better position than Everton were because maybe they're maybe they're a better team maybe not it's a little bit difficult to say but what's not difficult to say is that the quality of teams surrounding them has has diminished quite a lot because Back in those days, United and Liverpool and Chelsea and Arsenal were just so unbelievably consistent. No one's consistent now. It's all over the place. And it's there for the taking for Leicester, not just in general this season, but more specifically tonight, where I actually think they will beat Chelsea and go top of the league because it's not not too, too formidable an outfit that they're going up against. And therefore, they'll have the belief, I think, that they can do it. Yeah, uh, like you say, that, that Chelsea game would be definitely um, an interesting one to watch. But it's not the only uh, major sporting event to look forward to this uh, weekend. Obviously, the UFC is back and uh, Conor McGregor makes his return. He 
fighting against uh, Poirier. Um, I guess, Breslin, I'll, I'll let you take over from this, but I guess the first question I already have is, do you think McGregor is ready? Do you know, he's been out for so long. How do you see him faring in this fight? It's funny. There were similar questions um, like before his last fight against Cerrone. Um, but then he went and smoked him in 40 seconds. And, you know, we kind of expected McGregor to beat Cerrone fairly comfortably, maybe not as easily as he ended up doing. But Cerrone was always one of those guys that he kind of choked when he got to the big fight. Poirier's a bit different. Poirier is that level of fighter. And some people may think that, oh, McGregor beat him before, he'll beat him again. But the thing that people don't really take into account there is, yes, McGregor stopped Poirier in less than two minutes in September of 2014. And people may have followed McGregor's career since then, but they wouldn't have uh, they wouldn't have followed Poirier's. And since that then, Poirier, he had a bit of a blip um, in his second fight after the McGregor fight where he did lose, but he's only lost one since then. He's racked up seven, eight, maybe nine wins. And a lot of those wins were against absolute, the the best of the division, really. Uh, You know, Anthony Pettis, Justin Gaethje, Eddie Alvarez. He beat Max Holloway. And you saw how good Max Holloway looked uh, this past weekend. You saw... I'm sure you've seen the clip of him turning to the commentary team and shouting, I'm the best boxer in the UFC. And then he dodged about five punches in a row that he wasn't even looking at. Max Holloway is, is, is elite and, and Poirier beat him. So doesn't Poirier is certainly much, much better than he was when he fought Conor McGregor the first time. But I think Conor McGregor is also better. He's also improved since then. And, in terms of skill, McGregor should win. But it's the mental side of things that's equally interesting, if not more so. Before the first fight, McGregor was living rent-free in Poirier's head. There, there's, a, there's a clip from the UFC vlog series Embedded where Poirier's walking across the lobby of a hotel somewhere and he, just, he says to his coach, I've never disliked someone so much that I'm about to fight. And in the very next episode, McGregor's watching that and he just cracks up laughing because you know I've got him. And to me, Poirier was beaten before he even got into the cage. I don't think that's the case this time. McGregor has already said or said he likes Dustin and he thinks he's a great fighter. And he's already committed to donating to a few of Dustin's charitable endeavors after the fight. And as far as the mental game with McGregor, he's obviously very strong mentally, but I, I do have a bit of there are there was one thing that said that he might not be on the right plane. He said of Khabib, and he's always going to be um, fairly aggressive in his rhetoric when he comes when it comes to Khabib. But he said, "I'm still the champion because after our fight, Khabib didn't have the belt placed around his waist." And but now the only reason that didn't happen was because obviously after Khabib beat McGregor, there was a massive riot. And Dana actually refused to put the belt around Khabib's waist in the octagon because he thought the place would be pelted with garbage and things would get even worse. But I do, I do 
a wonder whether or not McGregor is still living in the kind of fancy world that he is the champion. Maybe, and but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just a, a mindset. And we'll see how that mindset is if and when he fights Khabib. We don't know whether Khabib will come back from his retirement. He kind of left the door kind of half open as to whether or not he'd come back. If a fight excites him, he'll come back. If not, he won't. But as far as the fight this weekend goes, I still think McGregor will have too much for him. It'll be more competitive than the first time. Uh, I think McGregor will win in the second round. McGregor's been saying he'll do do him inside 60 seconds, and I'm not going to say he won't do that because he's done stuff like it in the past. He did it in his last fight. But I'm going to err on the side of caution and say, Conor McGregor wins by TKO in the second round. Well, it'll be um, it'll be an interesting watch anyway. And like you said, like Poirier is a more experienced fighter and stuff, and it really uh, comes down to those early rounds as well. Um, moving on then as well, I suppose uh, I'll hand it back over to you, Brezen, because you're probably well. Neither of us know as much as other Comer, but you'll know more than me. Uh, there's a lot to look forward to in the NFL. Yeah, we're essentially at this stage, we're at basically the Super Bowl semifinals. I know they're called the AFC and NFC Championship Games, but for us simps to live in the world of quarterfinal, semifinal, final, the best way to think of it is, oh, it's a Super Bowl semifinals. Whoever wins gets to the Super Bowl. And on one side, you have... The reigning defending Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs, going up against the Buffalo Bills. And the Chiefs look good at the weekend, I think, Homer, in uh, putting away the Cleveland Browns. But there was um, cause for concern when their star quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, who's basically the Tom Brady of the new generation, um, went down with what appeared to be a concussion. He had to come off the field. What is his status for uh, playing this Sunday and what effect will it have on the Chiefs if he can't play? Uh, the best way to describe his status is that it's not in his hands. It's not in the hands of the Kansas City Chiefs. He's in what's called the NFL's concussion protocol where the NFL has appointed independent doctors to monitor him throughout the week and if close to game day, they don't see him ready enough, then he will be. he's prohibited to play in the game. So if he's not good enough to go, then there's nothing the Chiefs can do about it and they're going to have to play their backup, Tyler Henney, who closed out the game Sunday against Cleveland for them at quarterback. And I think that the game rests on Patrick Mahomes' availability. I think if he plays, Buffalo will push the Chiefs close, but I think that inevitably his talent will get them over the line. If he doesn't play, I think that Tyler Henney, although he closed out the game against Cleveland at the weekend through a mad scramble at the end and then a uh, a well-worked play on fourth down uh, to see it out. I don't think he'd uh, do it against the Bills because as good as Cleveland were in the playoffs, as much as much pride as they finally get to the city of Cleveland after all the years of misery, they're still not an all-rounded team. The Buffalo Bills, on the other hand, seem like an all-rounded team. And I think that if Buffalo are facing a backup quarterback, I think they're going to win the game. So... Patrick Mahomes, now, after the game on Sunday, Chiefs head coach Andy Reid was asked, 
what's the story with Mahomes? How's he looking? And he seemed very positive about it. I don't know whether he was just doing that. So the celebrations from the win did instantly turn into worry over whether Mahomes would be available or not. But Andy Reid was positive anyways after the game on Sunday. But it's we're going to find out some stage later in the week whether he plays or not. And basically, I think that, like I said, if Patrick Mahomes does play, the Chiefs win. If he's not playing, I think that the Bills win. So it's all up in the air at the minute. It's mad that the the fate of a of this massive sporting occasion can hinge on one man, but you know we've seen it in the past. On the other side of the draw, uh, you've got the Green Bay Packers, who have looked pretty imperious, I have to say, throughout the regular season and so far in the postseason as well. They're up against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are Tom Brady's new team. He left the New England Patriots after a, a very, very decorated stint there. And he's with the Buccaneers now. And this is from an outsider looking in, but would it be fa- a fair assertion to say that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have been dragged kicking and screaming to this point in the season by Tom Brady? Um, I, I think, I don't know if that would be entirely fair. Of course, he is the main reason I think that they're there because the problem with Tampa Bay last year was their quarterback, Jameis Winston, just kept turning the ball over. He was the first ever man to throw 30 touchdowns and 30 interceptions in one NFL season, which is ridiculously hard to do, but he managed it. He was just, you never knew what you were going to get with him, and they inevitably moved on from him in the offseason. And they brought in free agent Tom Brady, who you know we, we know all about. He's the most decorated player of all time. Best postseason player, I think, ever probably the best player ever and even at the age of i think he's 43 he still he still looks good he's it's like he's aging in reverse you know many people have referred to him as benjamin button it's like he's aging in reverse it's it's mad so i think that there's there is talent around brady on this tampa bay buccaneers team the wide receivers are very good uh they brought in antonio brown who there is a bit of controversy around for reasons we won't get into but, you know, Tom Brady came into Tampa and, you know, basically asked, can we get Antonio Brown in here, who had a very successful spell in Pittsburgh a few years back? He was brought in. He's really played well these last few weeks. Their other wide receivers, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, are both very good. Scotty Miller can come in and he's a deep threat for them, so he can be dangerous to other teams. Rob Gronkowski, a tight end, uh, you know, Brady's best friend from back in his New England days, or, well, one of them. His best weapon, anyways, is although he's not the tight end he once was, he looks okay. You know, he's playing all right. And then at running back, uh, Leonard Fournette had a good game against the Saints at the weekend, really stepped up for Ronald Jones, who was basically kind of half fit and wasn't playing as much as he would. So there's talent around him in Tampa Bay. The defense is playing quite well. Uh, Devin White, the linebacker for them, is playing extremely well. Um, you know, might be the best young uh, defensive player in the league. He's that good. And it was a very impressive win against them for New Orleans on Sunday. The main talking point, I think, was the juxtaposition between Tom Brady and Drew Brees. Drew Brees is a year younger than Tom Brady, and he looks absolutely finished. He's had, you know, a very successful career. He will be in the Hall of Fame one day. But it's clear after the game Sunday, he has to retire. He looked really bad out there, and it was kind of telling of his entire season. But... As good as Tampa Bay have been, as good as they were to close out the regular season and as good as they've been in the postseason, 
I would fancy Green Bay here. I think Aaron Rodgers is going to be the league MVP because uh, he's just he pulled ahead of Patrick Mahomes kind of in the last few weeks of the season. He looked very good against the Rams Sunday. And one thing about Green Bay is that that city is absolutely freezing at this time of year. Their field, uh, Lambeau Field, is known as uh, the frozen tundra around this time of year because it, it's going to be very icy weather. There could be snow, who knows. But it's very hard for opponents, especially when you come from a sunny city like Tampa Bay in Florida, to go into Green Bay this time of year in the freezing cold and win. So I think that the Packers will be more used to the conditions, which is going to play a part. I think that Devontae Adams, the wide receiver for the Packers, is probably going to have another good game, as he has all year. Rodgers is going to play great, but the main the main thing about this uh, game is that it you should just enjoy it because it's the first time, might end up being the only time we've seen Rodgers play Brady in the postseason. Um they haven't in the past because, you know, Brady was playing for the Patriots in the AFC, so they couldn't meet the Packers en route to the Super Bowl. But they could have met in the Super Bowl a couple of times, but usually it was the Packers who were falling short in certain uh, games, and it usually wasn't Aaron Rodgers' fault. So, you know, Sunday will be it'll be great to watch these two finally play each other in a playoff game. And like I said, if I had to pick here, I would go with the Green Bay Packers. But if it is a loss for Tampa on Sunday... I think they can be proud of how they've played this season and I would still fancy them to contend even next year. Okay, and we'll hope, we'll hope to have you on the show, Comer, uh, over the next few weeks to obviously review these games, preview the Super Bowl, and obviously review the Super Bowl itself once it happens. Um, just before we go, obviously COVID is still an issue and I do want to talk about a couple of sports things that have been kiboshed as a result of that. Uh the men's Six Nations is scheduled to go ahead, but the women's and the under-26 Nations have been uh, postponed, which I find disappointing. The The under-20s is kind of understandable. It's not as important. But the women's I find quite disappointing because hi- hypothetically, they should be on the same level. This is the men's senior team. This is the women's senior team. But... Obviously, they must think that the women's um, doesn't um, draw enough money for it to be worth the risk to do it, which I find really disappointing. Uh, and uh, the GAA have cancelled all third-level competitions uh, for this year. So no Sigurdsson Cup, uh, no Fitzgibbon Cup. Um, so nothing for a DCU to compete for this year, which is disappointing, but also understandable um it's 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 kind of uh not really worth the risk especially for co- collegiate athletes when collegiate athlete collegiate athletics is a money spinner in america but it's not in ireland so in 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 the idea of safety i think that is ultimately the right thing to do but uh that's going to do it for this edition of action replay um we hope you enjoy the show and this is our um time slot now for the next few weeks tuesdays at 1 p.m right here on dcufm uh crosby comer as ever thank you so much for contributing thanks very much uh thanks very much and uh next week on the show we'll be reviewing the poirier mcgregor fight uh we'll have jack ginley on the show to talk about that uh plus we'll have the soccer and we'll have everything else that's happening in the world of sport. If you want to follow us, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram or at DCUFM Sport. 
But until then, I've been Sean Breslin. This is Action Replay. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week.